Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense, Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello sports fans and welcome back to another edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm your host Dana Augusta and this is the place where we celebrate the anniversaries of the greatest sports moments one week at a time. And this week we will focus on the NBA primarily where two of the most memorable moments in the history of that sport took place this week in history. Later in the in the podcast we will also spotlight a certain team from the mid-1990s. They had one of the greatest runs in NBA postseason history that didn't win a title, yet shocked the world. Also, we will revisit the most dramatic moment in the history of the NBA Finals, which was the catalyst of a team's first NBA title, and that is this week's main event. And so as a reminder, please subscribe to this podcast if you like what you hear here, and check out our Twitter page at HistoricallySP2. And now... On with the show. Now, this week's main event takes us back to 1970 and the NBA Finals of that year. The, the battle for that year's world championship would feature two flagship NBA franchises from the two largest markets in the country. Of course, we're talking about the New York Knicks and the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, the Knicks, coached by Red Hoseman, finished the regular season with a record of 60-22 and 22, and won the Eastern Conference title by beating a young and up-and-coming Milwaukee Bucks team that featured the likes of Lou Alcindor and Oscar Robertson. And the Knicks featured that year's league MVP, Willis Reed, along with future Hall of Famers in the likes of Walt Frazier, Bill Bradley, Dave DeBusher, Dick Barnett, and Cassie Russell. Meanwhile, the Lakers entered the playoffs with a modest 46-36 and 36 mark, but they will find their stride in the postseason, sweeping the Atlanta Hawks in the Western Conference Finals four games to none. The Lakers had their usual cast of leading men. In fact, by the time of the NBA Finals, Wilt Chamberlain, Jerry West, and Elgin Baylor were the three leading playoff scorers in NBA history. And with an added twist of the Finals will be both teams or were hungry for championships. The Knicks were looking for his first NBA title in franchise history, while the Lakers were looking for his first one since moving to the West Coast in 1960, because previous to that, of course, they were the Minneapolis Lakers. Now, after the first two games of the series, it was split one game apiece, with the scene shifting from the Madison Square Garden in New York City over to the Forum in Inglewood, California. Now, game three will become an instant classic as both the Knicks 
and the Lakers were involved in a seesaw struggle throughout the game. The climax of the game came in the final seconds of regulation, with game tied at 100 points apiece, and Dave Bush, the Busher connecting on a 16-foot jumper to give the Knicks a two-point lead with three seconds left in regulation. The Lakers, with no timeouts remaining, had to quickly inbound the ball. Chamberlain passed it to Jerry West, who took two dribbles and heaved up a shot from beyond half court. Here's how Lakers radio announcer Jig Hearn described it. Trying to press pressure the inbounds pass, and it comes in to Walt Frazier with 10 seconds now showing in the clock. Eight seconds left to go on the clock. Seven, six, five. The Busher shoots. Hit with three seconds to go. Two seconds. One second. West throws it up. Despite that dramatic shot at the end of regulation by Mr. Clutch, the Knicks would hold on and prevail in overtime 111-108 to thanks to Willis Reed's 38 points. The Lakers would respond, however, in Game 4, evening the series with a 121-115 win, sending the series back to New York for Game 5 with the series tied at two games apiece. Now, the series would turn in the pivotal Game 5 back in Madison Square Garden. Now, with the Knicks holding a slim lead, disaster struck as Willis Reed, captain and MVP, would would injure his leg as he tried to drive to the basket, trying to drive around Will Chamberlain. He suffered a torn abductor muscle, which essentially controls the ability to lift your leg when you take a step. Now, despite the absence of Reed, somehow the Knicks would knock off the Lakers in Game 5 and sending the series back to L.A. for Game 6 and needing just one more win to claim their first ever NBA title. Yet, it was not to be for the Knicks in Game 6. Without Reed to contain Chamberlain, Wood would drop 45 points in a Lakers route, setting up a Game 7 back in New York City. On May 8, 1970, the final game of the series was named by ESPN in 2010 as the greatest Game 7 in NBA Finals history in taking place of all places in the mecca of basketball, Madison Square Garden. The big question surrounding the game was, would Willis play? As ABC Television was in the middle of their pregame telecast, Reed appears out of the darkness of the tunnel that led to the Knicks dressing room and emerged on the court. Broadcasters Chris Schenkel and Jack Twyman was on the call. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Chris Schenkel and my colleague on the NBA Game of the Week and then this playoff series, Jack Twyman. And Jack, 19,500 fans here in New York City uh, have yet to see Willis Reed at this hour of the evening. That is very critical. We heard Red Holzman say he expected him to start. We just had an announcement uh, from the press row that Willis has just received 200 cc of cortisone. Now, I've had cortisone myself, and I think we see Willis coming out. Here he comes right now. Six feet ten from Grambling. The captain of the next, the most valuable player of the NBA. It's a standing ovation at the new Madison Square Garden. 
This is a 38 sellout crowd, and they have been reacting to their Knickerbockers the same way all season long. New York Knicks fans were absolutely beside themselves as their captain and MVP, Willis Reed, began going through his warm-ups. And as the game began, fans began to question on how effective Willis would be against Chamberlain. The answer would soon come to them very quickly. To get off the floor. Now it's Garrett who has the ball for Los Angeles, number 20. Number 22 is Elgin Baylor. Guarded by DeBusher and Baylor shot it short. It's taken by Bill Bradley, then a pass break to Walt Frazier. Frazier then slows it down. It's picked up by Jerry West at the top of the post. Reed. Willis Reed scores the first bucket here tonight in New York leads. After hitting his first shot, the Knicks found Willis again. And the Lakers, as they were Monday night in that upset win by New York, are standing around trying to get the ball into Chamberlain so he can try Willis Reed. And Reed now is outside. There's his second shot. He is two for two. Willis Reed. Look at him lift the opposite end of the court, trying to stay with Chamberlain. That would be the only points Reed would score. With the emotional return of Reed and Clive Frazier playing one of the greatest finals games of all time, scoring 36 points with 19 assists, the Lakers had little chance. Reed was also effective on Chamberlain on defense, limiting him to just two shots in nine attempts from the field. When Reed left the game for the final time with three minutes and five seconds remaining in the first half, the Knicks held a 24-point lead. When it was all over, the Knicks had denied the Lakers once again of a world championship, and the Knicks finally claimed their first NBA title with a 113-99 victory in Game 7. Following the game the winner in the winner's locker room, a moved Howard Cosell standing between Willis Reed and Coach Red Hoseman told Reed on national television, quote, you exemplify the very best that the human spirit can offer. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was this week's main event. to the show and before we get on with the rest of the show one sign that we are growing here at historically speaking sports and the sports history network is we have a sponsor that is newspapers.com if you're listening to this podcast you're probably a serious sports fan like me and if you're into sports history you need to check out newspapers.com at newspapers.com you can get access to over 640 million pages worth of news from the united states canada england scotland ireland and so many more countries dating back from the 1700s till yesterday. Get one free week subscription to newspapers.com by visiting sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. And with a paid subscription, you'll also be helping support the production of this and other Sports History Network shows. That's sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. Also... 
please check out our Twitter feed here at Historically Speaking Sports, which is Historically SP2, for your daily dose of sports history. Also, you can drop a line or two at our email, which is historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to hit the subscribe button wherever you hear this podcast so you can get new episodes every week. And now, this week's top five. Welcome back to this week's Top 5, and if you're new to the program, what we do here in the Top 5 is to illustrate the Top 5 events that happened in this week in history. So this week, we're going to be taking a look at the significant sports moments that took place between the dates of May the 2nd and May the 8th throughout all of history. And this week includes two teams battling it out for a league championship that were known as the Pittsburgh Pipers and the New Orleans Buccaneers. We're also going to take a look at a runner in England doing something that was said that humans couldn't do. And finally, the sun that finally set on the Celtic dynasty. Starting things off in number five, this week in 1968, the Pittsburgh Pipers, led by sweet Charlie Williams, dropped 35 points and defeated the New Orleans Buccaneers 122-113 and in the seventh game of the inaugural ABA Finals. Future Hall of Famer Connie Hawkins also chipped in for 24 points for the Pipers in the championship, in the championship finale. Future Hall of Fame coaches Doug Moe and Larry Brown, who were both players for the New Orleans Buccaneers, were contributors as Moe would lead the Bucks, Buccaneers, that is, with 28 points in the losing effort in Game 7. That was the 1968 ABA Finals, the very first ABA Finals. Number four, there are long shots. And then there was Leicester City in the British, in the British Premier League of Soccer. This week in 2016, the Leicester City uh, Foxes claimed their biggest league title in British football when Tottenham blew a 2 nothing lead against Chelsea and ending in the draw. That decision gave Leicester City the Premier League title. The Foxes, as they are known as, entered the season with 5,000 to 1 odds to win the Premier League. To put that in perspective, this year's Jacksonville Jaguars odds to win the Super Bowl are just 500 to 1. Number three, this week in 1972, the Lakers, the aforementioned Lakers, finally get their first NBA championship as a, as the Los Angeles Lakers after moving to L.A. in 1960 and avenging their loss in 1970 to the New York Knicks, winning the series four games to one. It would be Jerry West's first and only title as a player and the second for Will Chamberlain. Number two, this week in 1969, the curtain finally sets on the Celtic dynasty. In Bill Russell's final game as a player with the Celtics, he would claim his 11th championship, beating the Lakers 108 to 106 in Game Seven at the Forum. And this, and the number one sports moment of this week, they said it couldn't be done, and if someone did it, they could possibly die. But.
but Roger Bannister proved that it could be done and he didn't die from it. This week in 1954, Bannister, a runner from England, became the first runner to run a sub-four-minute mile and a record some said would never be achieved. The meet taking place at Ifley Road Track in Oxford, England, Bannister recorded a time of 3 minutes 59.4 seconds. Side note to this record, it only lasted for 46 days. And that concludes this week's Top 5 and coming up next, we're going to wrap things up with this week's shout out. And this one I remember very fondly. Stay tuned. Finally, we're back with this week's shout out and this week we're going to be talking about uh, the team that put together one of the greatest postseason runs of not only the decade of the 90s, but also one of the best postseason runs in NBA history and nearly shocked the world twice. The 1994 Denver Nuggets finished the season with a record of 42-40 and 40 in 1994 and claimed the eighth spot in the postseason, that year on the last day of the regular season. Coached by former player and all-star Dan Issel, the Nuggets were not expected to do much in the playoffs. It was their first appearance in the playoffs in four years and had one of the youngest rosters in the NBA. The Nuggets were led by a trio of young stars that were still developing in the NBA after stellar college careers. At center was Dikembe Mutombo, also known as Mount Mutombo affectionately by the Nuggets fans. He was just in his third year out of Georgetown. And at point guard was Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, better known as Chris Jackson while he was at LSU, who was the catalyst of an offense that averaged right at 100 points per game. And the third star was a high-flying scorer by the name of Lafonso Ellis out of Notre Dame. Ellis was in his second year and averaged a shade over 15 points per game, but was one of the most athletic forwards in the league. Along with young stars, the Nuggets had a, a cast of veteran players with, that gave leadership like with the likes of Reggie Williams, Bryant Stith, and Tom Hammonds. Their reward for getting the last spot in the Western Conference playoffs they would open the postseason against the Seattle Supersonics. Coached by George Carl and led by Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, and Deadlift Shrimp, all of them perennial all-stars. The Sonics had posted the league-best 63-19 record, and the Nuggets lost the first two games of the series expectedly. Yet upon arriving in Denver, the, Den the Nuggets used the shot-blocking presence of Matumbo to match up with the Sonics, along with career performances by Brian Williams, Reggie Williams, and Robert Pack. The Nuggets eventually would end the, even the series. The series went back to Seattle for a fifth game, and the Nuggets would rally the tighter game and force overtime. In overtime, the Nuggets would emerge with a four-point win, 98-94, to and become the first eighth-seeded team to beat a number one seed in an on-court camera shot is featured to Kimberly Mutombo at the end of the game in jubilation laying on his back holding the ball after the buzzer sounded. 
as becoming the ace, first eighth-seeded team to beat a top seed was an outstanding achievement. Heck, maybe even a miracle. But the miracle actually was yet to come. There was little time for celebration as the Nuggets were turned around to face their arch-rivals, the Utah Jazz, in the Western Conference semifinals. The Jazz had pulled off a minor upset themselves, beating the uh, favorite San Antonio Spurs three games to one in the opening round of their playoff series. Utah had entered the postseason as a fifth seed with a solid 53-29 record, led by the devastating duo of John Stockton and Carl Malone. In the second round, the Nuggets struggled in their first three games to the fifth-seeded Utah Jazz. Yet, despite the threat of elimination and down three games to none, the Nuggets would rally then win the next three consecutive games and the force a Game 7 back in Salt Lake City. They became the first team since the 1951 New York Knicks to force a Game 7 after losing the first three games of a seven-game series. The dream of shocking the world again was not to be, unfortunately, for Denver. Led by Carl Malone's 31 points, ended the Nuggets' dream of a postseason run, losing 91-81 at the Delta Center. The Jazz postseason would end as well, losing to the eventual champion Houston Rockets four games to one in the Western Conference Finals. And that will conclude this week's show, and thanks for listening in. And don't forget to, lo- to follow us on Twitter at HistoricallySP2, and also hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, I'm Dana Augusta, and talk to you later on the other side of history. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.